Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Dr. Obert Bernard Mlambo about his really original, really discipline-pushing, interdisciplinary book that I think raises a lot of questions in multiple areas. Um, So I'm quite excited to talk about it. The book is titled Land Expropriation in Ancient Rome and Contemporary Zimbabwe, Veterans, Masculinity and War. And it was published by Bloomsbury in 2022. And without giving too much away, as the title suggests, this is a really interesting comparative history in a way, but that's probably not doing the ideas their full justice. Thankfully, the author is here to do it properly. So Bernard, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda, for having me. I'm very pleased. Thank you again. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. Well, we're very happy to have you. Um, But before we dive too far into the book, could you start us off by introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Yes, I'm a classicist by profession, uh, specifically a Roman historian. But um, I do quite a lot of things in terms of my research, areas of interest and specialization, uh, stemming, of course, from uh, my education, um, which saw me doing um, a first degree in in classical studies and honors in classics. Um, Also in the first degree, I I, I did history, um, world history, so to speak, is one of my majors. And I also majored in in, in classics. And then a master's where I narrowed my special my specialization to do Roman history and of course a PhD um, in, 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 in Roman history. But of course, it's again a comparative investigation of issues to do with the ancient Roman world and contemporary Zimbabwe. I'm currently an associate professor of classical studies and history at the University of Zimbabwe, and I'm due to take a, a position at Rhodes University this semester. Yeah, so basically that's about Mm. myself. Thank you for starting us off with that. Um, And as you mentioned, this book is comparing ancient Rome and contemporary Zimbabwe. How did you decide to compare these two against each other? Thank you very much for a very important question. Um, The question which I have always uh, come across whenever... uh, people interested in my book uh, wish to discuss the book with me. And I've always been uh, enthused to reflect uh, quite, you know, in detail because there's never a single answer to that question, but perhaps a more nuanced um, response would be quite helpful to anyone who would be interested in, in, in reading the book. So basically I, I've always said to myself, historical alienationism normally holds that the ancient Roman world, for instance, is so different from the present that it is scarcely any value for contemporary Africa or in particular contemporary Zimbabwe. So for example, to say we are in a totally new world where nothing from the ancient Romans could be of use to us now is a form of historical alienationism. I'm trying to give a bit of explanation in terms of what I mean by uh, historical alienationism. So whether or not historical alienationism can be associated with a definite thinker or proponent, my book has some answers to it. And I'm not able, of course, to exhaust all the nuances surrounding the question that I'm that you've asked me, but perhaps I'll just try to, you know, touch on the pressure points that would you know, cast a light on the question that you've just asked me. So my attitude to ancient Rome in the book was shaped by how much ancient Rome resembles my present circumstances as a Zimbabwean. So I do not accept an anachronism, of course, according to which the resemblance between ancient Rome and contemporary Zimbabwe is duly exaggerated. But even if one tries to avoid making ancient Rome a carbon copy of Zimbabwe, that does not mean they have nothing in common. To the extent that humans of the past and present can both be human, sorry, can both be called humane, 
they have pres presumptively something in common sufficient to justify the use of the same term human for both. And that's what happened in Asian Rome is not irrelevant to contemporary Zimbabwe in the sense that a similar human condition applies to, uh, to both ages. Um, one would, of course, go on to ask, are ancient Romans the same humans as Zimbabweans? My book thus proposes an approach to history for the study of classical and African culture, an approach which does not overstress the difference of the past and the present in the fashion of extreme progressivism, progressivism or historical alienationism. So this approach may be termed objective humanism. It takes into account the objective similarities and differences between ancient Romans and contemporary Africans, doing justice, of course, to the difference of historical periods and cultures. So the book's positive view of humanity gives an incentive for interest in human history and culture and a motivation to persist in intercultural, intercultural dialogue. So a belief in common humanity for me offers a background for the comparison of humans and societies belonging to different cultures, places, and times. I've also looked at scholarship dealing with more or less related topics. For example, how 2013, who refers to the use of far out comparisons in the grounded theory approach, which is <clears throat> an approach to social scientific research proposed by scholars such as Glazer and Strauss, and further articulated by Strauss and Corbin. Um, so classical antiquity, for example, um, is very interesting, you know, human uh, situations, which if you want to look at it, really seem like they are replicating themselves. And my interest particularly uh, was provoked uh, by such um, very close you know, and intersecting, um, you know, human situations to do with challenges of a veteran phenomenon in the late Roman Republic and contemporary Zimbabwe. In short, this is the philosophical um, underpinnings behind my choice of the present study contained in the book that we are discussing over to you, Miranda. Mm. Thank you for giving us such a kind of helpful context and foundation, um, not just about the decision of the cases, but as you how you've approached them in comparison. Because um, now I get to ask you about kind of all the details of that um, with that philo philosophical foundation in mind. Turning to the first word in the subtitle of the book, uh, veterans, if we're thinking about these uh, case studies together in the way that you've just described, to what extent was the idea of what a veteran was similar between ancient Rome and Zimbabwe? And what do you think we can learn by comparing uh, what a veteran means across these two cases? Thank you very much. Uh, what an interesting question. First of all, I would say differences are bound. In talking of veterans, or perhaps let me start by looking at it from uh, first, of, first of all, um, ancient ancient Rome itself. Uh, before I, I I I consider the contemporary example um, of Zimbabwe, the term veteran Miranda um, mm -hmm. in the late Roman Republic, and of course in Roman Republican scholarship, um, classicists would know, or specialists in Roman history would know that it is used to refer to soldiers with a special loyalty to their commander in the period of the client army era. That is the time of Marius, Sala, Pompey, and later Caesar and Octavian. And of course, my definition of veteran in first century BC Rome is informed more closely by Appian, who records that veterans were those who fought on behalf of another. That is, they are seen by Appian, the historian, as client soldiers. And we do have a Greek word for that, which means literally one who fights on behalf of someone. And this Greek word can be pronounced in Greek as euperagonistes, related to euperagonizondo, meaning one who fights on behalf of another or a champion. But perhaps we do not have to limit it to that category 
in, in Roman history or the, the, the Republican era itself. We can also go on to talk of citizen soldiers returning from frontier warfare in the second century BC. They also do constitute part of the Gracchi problems. Who may not you know, squarely fit in this category, although they actually form part of the historical process of the problem, which became a factor in Roman politics in the first century. But of course, we may confidently say the time expired soldiers of the legions are also part of what should be referred as veterans. To the extent that we can say the term veteran in the late Roman Republic does not necessarily imply even advanced age or long service. In the second and first century BC, recruits who expected to save not more than, sorry, they were expected to save not more than six continuous years since six years of service were counted as the complete full service. And anyone who had completed the six years was entitled to share in an available premium. But according to Polybius, foot soldiers saved for 16 legal years and the cavalry saved for 10 legal years in, in his time. That is the time of Polybius. Um, however, the client army area tended to disregard these strict limits as retired soldiers could be enlisted into private armies of individual generals inspired by rewards in the form of acreage, booty, or money. Perhaps it is helpful as I try to give a clearer concept of this term veteran when it comes to the Roman Republic. The idea that the veterans were sort of mercenaries holding out for financial compensation was also implied. Um, we have references, several references across the primary text, and I may here refer to Lucan, book five from line 244, if you want, onwards, where there is mention of um, this idea of, um, there's a word defended, so to speak, um, which term suggests that financial rewards and not just rewards of valor were sought by veterans. So there are two important factors to consider when we conceptualize the term veteran in the late Roman Republic. They were, reward, they were rewarded uh, first and foremost for their acts of valor. They were rewarded as heroes who fought for Rome, uh, wars of expansion, and sometimes even uh, during civil wars, for example, the civil war between Marius and Sala, where Sala would have to reward his soldiers after you know, the civil war, the civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompey, where veterans also had to be fobbed off, um, you know, in terms of compensation, uh, where they received uh, land and even money. So it is a reward of valor and also generally to be understood is financial compensation, broadly speaking. This is how I generally conceptualize the term veteran. But most importantly, when we talk of valor, when we talk of heroism, we are now interested in the propaganda and you know, the tendency to manipulate ideals of power by way of posturing, exploiting conventional ideals of power, which became an in thing in the you know, construction of ideals of power, and then a creation of gradations of um, you know machismo and of course bearing um, you know some implications when it comes to how resources were to be distributed. We are now having uh, the rules of the jungle here, where the fittest person could be able not just to claim what they deserved, but also to even um, expropriate because they had the power and the macho to to do that in this total disregard of the constitution, in total disregard of rules, in total disregard of rights to property because of this kind of uh, mentality that it gripped, excuse me, in the uh, kind of politics at Rome where Roman generals ended up, you know, usurping political power and, you know, getting political gravitas and support from their hordes of, of veterans who supported their cause. 
I quickly turn on to Zimbabwe, where I also try to carve in and try to nuance and explain this concept in order also that it may help the listener to understand the points of conduct, which of course encouraged me to, or enabled me to come up with this interesting um, comparison. In Zimbabwe, of course, when I'm talking of veterans, I am interested in the adult population of guerrilla fighters who fought in the Rhodesian Civil War, or War of Independence. These actually share a more or less similar ideology of the Liberation War, and their identities are grounded in the anti-colonial struggle, which culminated in the country's independence in 1980. And um, was actually the work of men and women from various political organizations in the country. And these men and women are the archetypical, sorry, archetypal embodiments of the liberation struggle. That I've mentioned women uh, shows a marked difference in the two worlds of veterans, that is the late Roman Republic and, and, and the Zimbabwean case study, in that there were no female soldiers in ancient Rome, but in Zimbabwe already we have females participating in war and also claiming a stake of rewards after the war as if it ends. So, yes, as was in Rome, in contemporary Zimbabwe, the veteran is claiming um, for land, most importantly, as was the case in Rome, and also for money and recognition generally in society, simply because of the valorous acts that they claim to have um, exhibited to save the country um, and to even claim the country back from the jaws of colonialism. Mm. So I, perhaps oh, this... Please continue, could, sorry. So perhaps this can um, end up being, you know, um, a continuous um, explanation of this concept because there are so many things that I could say. Maybe it is important that I end there, Miranda. <laughs> well... I do actually want to ask you um, kind of things based off of that answer. So um, mm -hmm. obviously the, the rewards and land part of it, but I'd like to stay on this point of valor and heroism for a moment um, mm -hmm. because there are such kind of key similarities that you've described in the importance that the veterans attach to this. But you talk about in the book that there's actually a difference in one aspect or maybe a few aspects between them. Um, and I wanted to ask about the view of battle scenes, because so often when we think of valor and heroism, there are certain images that come to mind, right, of mm -hmm. maybe what a monument looks like or a parade or something like that. And so if this is so important to the veterans in both instances, can you tell us about this difference in terms of battle scenes between them um, and kind of how that plays into what valor meant, what heroism meant, and what it felt like to veterans for those things to be recognized? Thank you very much for a very interesting question. Vala is a very important notion in the two worlds of veterans uh, in the sense that Vala is not a status that one could wake up one morning uh, claiming to have without the evidence to that, to that effect. And this evidence uh, in both worlds of veterans uh, is attested by one strict record. So there's a narrative of one's involvement in very dangerous battles, battle scenes, where they, for instance, got scarred, where they, for instance, um, lost a limp, and where, for instance, some of their fellow comrades actually fell and died uh, in battle. But that is not all. Vala was also constructed um, in the manner in which one behaved uh, in the battle, uh, battle, battleground itself. Um, people would do extraordinary things in full view of their fellow comrades, sometimes being 
uh, warned not to do that. I have a very interesting example. Um, for instance, in the contemporary Zimbabwean um, you know, case study, these are details that emerged from the interviews that I conducted with uh, veterans of the liberation struggle. The late liberation war hero by the name uh, Solomon Mujuru, uh, on the battlefield, you would not even hesitate to walk while his guns were blazing um, without trying to duck or without trying to crawl or without trying to avoid the bullets. You would scream, you would run from one end to the other in terms of the arrangement of his men, rearranging, shouting to say, don't do that. And some people would even run to, you know, pull him down to say, General, this is dangerous. Dangerous as it was. After the war, he remained one of the iconic figures of Zimbabwe's religion um, war of independence because of such acts. And he is up to now, though dead, still remembered for such uh, courageous acts. Fearless is the word. And this is quite characteristic of what obtained in the late Roman Republic. It is not, it is not just posturing for the sake of it, but it is actually a, a belief um, which in real life situations tra translates into actions which defy the logic of one would conduct themselves in such dangerous situations. But heroes would confront death and look death in the eye. That's how Vala is con constructed between the two um, you know, sets of veterans. Um, they really seem like they are taking it from the same hymn book, although these societies are separated by, by 2,000 words. So another similar malaise um, concerns, of course, the question of those who then after the war, when they are being viewed in society, they come in society often psychologically wounded or traumatized. And of course, to a world that little understands them and in which they feel alienated and sometimes hostile. So when they do come, such veterans who might have, have exhibited extraordinary valor on the battlefield, in their societies back home during peace, they may feel that they, their very masculinities are being threatened. And then an anxiety symbolized um, by violence and the failure to settle peacefully in society is quite characteristic when one looks at both societies. Hence, a very interesting uh, point of comparison, which I explore in the book, looks at violence emanating from perceptions of the notion of heroism, the notion of valor itself, and how it ends up. Mm. Thank you for explaining. Right. Thank, thank you for explaining that um, comparison. I think it's it is really interesting to kind of think about how these um, two aspects go together, given that the iconography we might think of as being really different. Obviously, we don't have, for example, photographs of ancient Rome. And yet when you're describing them to us, the similarities really do become quite apparent. So now that I've asked you a bit more about valor and heroism, um, I'd like to turn to the other piece of your earlier answer that I wanted to pick up on, which is, of course, the idea of land as a reward, expropriation of land particularly. Can you walk us through the conceptions of masculinity in both of these places and times and how this supported expropriation of land? So here we are dealing with um, three things. And in your question, clearly, you have the concept of veteran and the concept of masculinity, and of course, the concept of land. I would start by looking at the relationship between the concept, the concepts of veteran and masculinity and how they are used as key concepts in the book. I do use the as key concepts in the book in analyzing the relations of military men and we need to take note 
that these are not just relations, but relations that are particularly contextualized in a crisis situation of resource redistribution, ownership and accumulation in both societies. And in this case, the resource at the center stage of my analysis is land. So these relations, Miranda, generally involve two broad areas. Relations of the action of the general upon his forces or vice versa, and relations of control over the confinement or distribution of material benefits. This obviously takes us to the, to the issue of land hunger because it is this problem of land hunger that has caused this kind of innovative um, you know, positioning of, 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 of the veteran in both societies and how he innovatively and intelligently appropriates qualities of, of, of his body, physical body, and the narrative of the war in which he has participated to claim for land. So there's discontent in both societies over land inequalities, motivated, of course, by the fact that the rich and the political elites accumulated vast tracts of land at the expense sorry, at the expense of the majority of the poor, creating in the process the problem of a poor peasantry, a hungry and landless city mob, and most importantly, the veteran phenomenon. And such a phenomenon is very dangerous, and that's the one that is at the center of the book. So naturally, analysis would unpack and give nuance to the various contextual factors and how they intersect to explain the construction, comma, performance, if you want, comma, appearance of land-based masculinities in the two societies. But it is not, this is not all. When we say that, remember Miranda, we are comparing two societies. We are comparing very disparate societies without any connection sociologically, without any connection um, historically, without any connection, um, you know, um, temporally. How does it happen that these factors can actually make sense in terms of trying to, you know, explain uh, the two societies and answering certain questions that arise uh, in the study of Roman history, for example, or the study of the contemporary case study of Zimbabwe. Once we talk of the concept of veteran, once we talk of the concept of um, masculinity, we are in the field of anthropology. And anthropologists would easily see a connection in trying to, to study human, uh, the human condition by paying due diligence to what they call practice theory. And this is what I use to study the cultural context of the Roman Republic and the contemporary Zimbabwe, using, of course, the context of Zimbabwe, which I am able to access life and also through text to then explain the function of the element of performativity, which in the Zimbabwean scenario comes out clearly in demonstrations, of course, in, and also in demonstrating the role of the masculine ideal in the broader matrix dynamics and the mechanics of land expropriations. And then I would argue to say these um, tools that I do have or methodologies that are at my disposal, because I could still interview a, a Zimbabwean veteran, he's around and I can see, still see him doing his thing on the streets and on the farm. It is not possible when it comes to to engine room. This uh, th this then helps. Th this helps. This then helps me to explain that bit which the engine historians did not have at their disposal in explaining to us scenarios of land expropriation and demonstrations in the city of Rome by hordes of veterans. So I'm taking ethnography from a modern case study and use it as a lens to try and conjecture what might have been the case with hordes of veterans demonstrating in the city of Rome, demonstrating for rewards, demonstrating for land. This is how the intersection can, in a nutshell, 
be be explained um miranda uh over to you that's i think um I mean, all of your answers have been a very interesting example of kind of why this comparison helps us in terms of studying. Um, I think that answer, perhaps especially that idea that we can take information that is available now and use and that maybe, to think about what happened. Maybe, sorry, Miranda, maybe before you go that there's an idea that that has just crossed my mind. Mm, please. Uh, which I think is quite a powerful way to, you know, look at things. Um, as they occurred in the late Roman Republic. And of course, as conveyed by the historians that I studied, Dio Cassius, for example, Appian, Suetonius, and so on. We know that since culture in anthropological terms can be understood as a matter of publicly observable, observable symbols and rituals, and the organization of discourse and practices. It is actually therefore possible to study connotations of the veterans. Subut, for example, and other military paraphernalia is materials that were central in the construction and performance of land-based masculinities in the late Roman Republic. There is, of course, no time for me to elaborate on that, but there are sections in the book where I actually zoom in around the 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 veterans boot as it was appropriated in the politics of um you know um power and 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 land claims um and i developed that to really show how the veterans boot or a soldier's boot was an important uh, uh, tool in the in the in the construction of a land-based masculinities using of course the performative um visuals that are accessible to me in a Zimbabwean context to try and, um, you know, contrast with the Roman example to see how even the two scenarios are different. There are certain uh, appeals to objects, certain appeals to bodily substances in both cases uh, of ancient Roman Zimbabwe by veterans to use as a, as a way to claim for, for land rewards. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for adding that in. Um, it actually gives me something I'd like to ask um, a bit about on that point of similarities and differences for the kind of public performance side of this uh, demonstrating by veterans. Um, because you do talk a lot about in the book sort of these group dynamics, the visible performances of groups of veterans, and that in many ways, there are quite a lot of similarities, as you've just discussed, between ancient Rome and contemporary Zimbabwe. One difference I wonder if you can tell us about is around the body aspect of it. Um, living veteran bodies, dead veteran bodies. How did these group performances and group actions of veterans differ when it comes to this aspect of bodies? Thank you very much, Miranda, for a very fascinating question. Um, and even when I was doing the the writing and um, research for the book, I really found it quite, quite, quite interesting, quite fascinating. Um, so it all boils down to how the physical body of a veteran um, was framed in the two in the two societies. So here we really need to think of the narratives and accounts relating to war veterans uh, that, that, that I examine in the book. And their purpose, uh, in my view, serve to frame several issues within the context of masculinity, serve to frame several uh, issues within the context of land expropriation, and serve to frame several issues within the context of the political economy of the physical bodies of the war veteran. And I've developed the argument that research has shown that masculinity as socially constructed is not always related to biological sex. Masculinity, even in ancient Rome, if you want to look at it that way, was associated with the heroic actions, was associated with sacrifice, was associated with dedication to one's nation. 
Now we want to look at it this way. How does a Roman veteran with that positioning as a manly man, what does he do? Inevitably, with that positioning, as manly men, Roman veterans with that positioning inevitably came a host of other social meanings, came a host of other social expectations, and came a host of other social identities upon which they acted, adopted or adapted in the context of their physical bodies involvement in land claims, contestations, and, and, and expropriations. Now we have a, a whole universe of how a Roman veteran is complicating the scenario, of how a, a war veteran is complicating his worldview of valor, mixing this concept with that concept, mis, mixing this idea with this idea. And in his posturing, he's not relying on one thing, as I've just shown you. When we cross over to contemporary Zimbabwe, at a generic level of looking at the instrumentalization of masculinity and the resources that come with that kind of, of posturing, generally we see a, a broad uh, similarities across the two societies. But if, as you have uh, rightly indicated, Miranda, I really looked closely to see how constructions of masculinities in the two case studies may not necessarily be a pigeonholed as if they were similar or are similar in every respect. I have noted the idea of spirituality, where, for example, in contemporary Zimbabwe, the body of the physical body of a Zimbabwean a veteran is not you know, conceived or conceptualized as a as an ordinary flesh and blood body, as one would understand from a biological point of view. Upon those bodies, in the worldview of, an African, of African metaphysics, are inscribed oracles of, of, of uh, you know, ancestors of, 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 of the traditional, I'm sorry, of the, of the, of the, of the Zimbabwean liberation veteran. Long gone, uh, ancestors whose spirits are believed to have incarnated in the bodies of the veteran who is expropriating land today, in the bodies of the veteran who fought the liberation war. So he does not fight the liberation war using his own energy as a human being who would have eaten and where the carbohydrates he would have eaten are converted into energy or sugar converted into energy, and then he is able to run to, 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 to shoot at, 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 at his enemies and so on. He can actually do that sometimes when at the, at the point of, 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 of starvation, a spirit can seize them, an ancestral spirit can seize them and use their bodies. To the extent that there was a prophecy given by one great 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 uh, mother in 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 the Shona in the Shona uh, ancestry called Nehanda, who prophesied when he was um, you know killed by by the by 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 the colonial forces to say my bones shall rise again. By that she did not mean there was going to be a physical resurrection like that of Jesus Christ, but it was some kind of spiritual incarnation of those spiritual forces. So masculinities in, in the context of Zimbabwe are spiritually constructed also, something which is really not the case when one looks at the late Roman Republic smart scenario. A veteran is a superhero in terms of his acts of his, his acts of valor and exploits solely depending upon his human skills and his abilities as a human being. I've not yet seen in proper, proper, proper history, historical context, an individual who was powered by any other force behind the force of investing in training in the body, the skills that would give one the invincibility, and the invincibility is a great soldier, is a great fighter.
That's one difference. Although there could be some overlaps here and there that, of course, in both societies, these are pretty traditional societies which could appeal to, you know, gods and so on and so forth. But when it really comes to the art of war, the art of fighting in a battle, that difference is marked in terms of how masculinity, a masculinity of a, an African warrior is, construct, is constructed and how a masculinity of a Roman uh, soldier is constructed. That element of spirituality uh, for me is, is, is very important and is a very interesting difference when one looks at the two. Uh, over to you, Miranda. I'm not too sure whether mm. I am to continue going on with this um, differentiation. Well, I wonder if I could maybe ask you to continue it, but add in a piece, um, mm -hmm. especially as you've brought up ideas of spirituality. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if that relates to ideas of madness during war and how this was seen? There is a relationship. It is quite related because when one is seized by a spirit, they, they cease to, in fact, their faculty, their mental faculties are in a way suspended and they are sort of a, existing as a medium of a superior power that has seized them. This is the context of purely African traditional religion. And this is where boundaries of normal behavior are crossed and traversed, such that it is possible now to delve into this interesting concept of a war madness. We have interesting um, examples of liberation war veterans currently uh, who behave like they've lost their mind when, whenever an opportunity is presented to them to you know, relate or discuss about the way in which they participated, whenever things get emotional about land redistribution, and whenever they are pushing for a cause to do with their remuneration, they tend to get made in terms of the actions that they do. And it is here where we, I try to conceptualize and understand this kind of behavior through the notion of the concept of warfare madness, um, which is also quite a result of many other factors depending on where one is standing. Psychologists could do it otherwise and prescribe a different explanation. Historians could do it otherwise. Religionists could do it otherwise and prescribe a different explanation to that. But it is quite important that notions of warfare madness are, are rampant in the two societies. And looking, for example, um, does, uh, you know, does, does mention um, such looking uh, mentions uh, such 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 a, a he mentions furious for example furious or madness uh, alluding to for example the feelings of violent warfare uh, and also if you want there are several places um, where looking. Uh, refers to the madness of war, which he calls belly furious uh, in book five, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I also try to ask questions whether there could be a connection between that kind of madness and issues, issues to do with sexuality. Because I, I was trying to explain why veterans, for example, in the setup of contemporary Zimbabwe, accusations or allegations have been labeled against them to do with a certain behavior where they tended not to respect um, you know, women and cases of, of rape, cases of murder. And looking really gives a very interesting um, you know, um, account of how such things uh, were implied in, 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 in ancient Rome during the civil war between Pompey and Caesar in, in, in his Fasalia, uh, especially when one looks at book five. Um, so I was looking at that. Uh, also extending discussion to look at how such stories or case 
uh, in other places, for example, the story of Sophocles in Cicero, that Sophocles viewed the sexual desire of his youth as a wild and furious master, domino aggressed ac furioso. So wildness and fury are for Lucan and also for Sophocles and for Cicero, if you want, they have an association with sexuality. So terms such as saevus is given by, 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 by Lucan, for example, unmistakably connotes wildness and fury, and they possibly have uh, connotations uh, to, to sexuality. So um, it is interesting how one could even develop the concept of war or the concept of warfare madness in the two societies as a category to explain a certain behavior by behavior by 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 veterans in both in both societies because it is quite an interesting phenomenon occurring in both in both contexts. So yeah, this is perhaps what I could say um, mm -hmm. for now, uh, Miranda. Mm -hmm. No, thank you so much for adding that in. Um, I think it's a really interesting to see those relationships um, and the way they kind of, as you said, make sense of what's happening. Um, can I ask perhaps a almost final question? So my question is um, about sort of the relationship between veterans on the ground, sort of rank and file veterans. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And generals, um, the people in charge of them, because that's quite often a complicated relationship, right? Both sides need each other, but don't mm. always agree. How can we understand claims from veterans saying, I deserve land, I've done all this heroism, I've been valorous, I've put myself on the line and sacrificed, I want land. Is that a claim to the generals, kind of you owe us? Is that a performance for the whole of society? How do we think about that claim for land when it comes to the relationship between leaders and followers? Thanks very much, Miranda. A, a very a rich <laughs> question, um, detailed and um, fascinating and also complicated. I would say, when looking at the two societies that I compare in the book, um, let me begin by saying there is a cultural particularity or cultural particularities of constructions and performance of violence or performance of masculinity for what? And of course, the different repertoires of cultural knowledge from where, or from where veterans um, draw such for purposes of appropriation. Um, and the veteran's perception of those whose land or property is expropriating, we need to understand that it was mediated by norms of heroic and, combat, and martial combat, point number one. When a veteran does that, he sometimes, these are the rules of violence and how violence sometimes manifests itself in society. Generals were never invincible or indomitable. Even Julius Caesar himself, uh, scholars tried to show the other side of his invincibility, but there were actual places where he had to cut compromises and to cut deals with these soldiers when he saw that he was almost going to lose it. So veterans, when they make a claim for rewards, for land, for property, or for anything for their benefit. If the general is weak, they run over him and get what they want. If the general is strong, they try to negotiate. By the way, especially the late Roman Republic veterans are quite sophisticated and, and intelligent. They are scenarios where speeches have been have been have been studied or studied or analyzed, generals giving speeches to their hordes of veterans. For example, Caesar himself. If you start some of those speeches, one would see that sometimes Caesar conceded because he had his back against the war as a result of what the veterans could not could do if 
he were to proceed with a certain course of action which was not favorable to his forces. So veterans did all sorts of things depending on the situation. And I'm not saying they always got it right, but the underlying, the underlying um, factor perhaps in terms of their dealings is perhaps to say they claimed for land simply because they could take it. They could get it by force. They had what it takes for them to, to get it. Even against the wishes of their leader, they could do it. Even against the wish of society, they could do it. But sometimes in the face of a very strong general, sometimes they tended to negotiate and they obviously uh, didn't get things their way in each and every uh, situation. Coming to contemporary Zimbabwe, the kind of seesaw sort of thing um, played out where, for instance, the general sometimes could convince them to wait. And they waited since 1980 after independence without any meaningful land redistribution program happening for them to benefit, for them to get land. Until 20 years later, in the year 2000, when they said enough is enough, and they started to invade land, and the police could not do anything about it. So yes, it is about how ideals of martial combat, um, you know, appropriated by war veterans to suit their their goals, and according to, to, to a specific situation, sometimes they took the route of negotiating. There's a there's a section in my book where I discuss Diocasius. Um, I don't, it doesn't okay to my mind what book it was, where veterans actually went to the capital and discussed among themselves the course of action involving the impasse that was existing between Marcus Antonius and, um, and Octavian, and how matters to do with their rewards uh, were supposed to be handled they had to determine the course of action themselves when their generals were uh, at a stalemate and when things were not moving. But they came together and uh, you know, put in motion a process that enabled them eventually to get something out of it uh, when eventually Andon and and, and um, Bakandon and um, Octavian eventually agreed to divide between themselves um, some provinces, wherein also eventually the veterans were allocated some land. If you really closely look at that 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 book, that story, you would see that uh, it is a very long story uh, with very you know uh, with vicissitudes, uh, changing fortunes, sometimes. Disadvantaging the veteran at the at, at, at the advantage of the general, sometimes disadvantaging the general at the advantage to the advantage of of of, of the veteran, and it's it's not a straightforward um, or one way of, of 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 seeing it. But veterans could do both negotiation and sometimes um, an appropriation of violence and masculine ideas to achieve uh, what what they wanted. I hope I've answered the question, Miranda. Mm. No, absolutely. Um, and I think it tied together a lot of things that we've been discussing throughout. So thank you for that. Um, I know we've taken quite a lot of your time, so I just have one final question. Mm -hmm. This obviously was a big project to put these two cases in conversation with each other. Um, but it is obviously done. People can go read it. Uh, you're no longer having to write it. So is there anything you're currently working on, um, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic, that you'd like to briefly highlight to the audience? Thank you very much, Miranda, for that question. Yes, I am working on, on another book. Uh, but the nature of this book um, is such that it is a... Um, a joint project 
joined in the sense that um, I am looking at the study, teaching, and research of classics in an African context. And the provisional title of the book is Classics in Africa, a Colon, Intercultural and Postcolonial Dialogue. So in a nutshell, this book looks at um, approaches to the study, teaching, and research of classics, which actually differ depending on where one comes from. Traditional classics is interpreted, traditional classics is read, traditional classics is studied using mainly the Euro-American ways of knowing. I would give an example. When I teach about cupids or nymphs to an African student, an African class, the questions that they ask me I have to be very sensitive to them. I don't have to laugh because I understand that their worldview is unlike global North worldview, not secular. They actually believe that a nymph or a cupid is real because in African spirituality, spirituality is a real thing. But when it comes to global North epistemic approaches, they unfortunately don't they are not sensitive to the world views of an African when studying material from classics because a, a student from the global north, a student from America or for example Europe, would dismiss that as something mythical when you talk of a nymph, when you talk of a of a of a of, of, of a cupid, it's something mythical. They easily dismiss that because of the secular nature of their worldview. So this book is an exposition of epistemological foundations from the global south, metaphysical foundations from the global south, and ontological realities from the global south standpoint, put together or contrasted with the global north epistemologies and meta metaphysical um, you know, positions to say, when we do have these two, when we are studying uh, classics, it is important not to exclusively jettison one form of knowledge as primitive, simply because certain ways of knowledge, certain ways of approaching classics are more scientific and more critical than the African ways, which are more traditional and, uh, and cultural. So it is a it is a it is an interesting dialogue, which tries to understand that classics, for as long as it is still being studied in Africa, there's need also to give room for African epistemologies in its study, uh, in its research, and and uh, and uh, in um, how we read uh, classical texts, using of course approaches that are purely African in how we understand certain things that in certain positions that may not really hook, line, and singer be in agreement with what the Global North Epistemological Foundations um, agree with. So generally, this is the project that I'm working on. Um, it's a mm -hmm. book that I'm co-authoring with a colleague, John Douglas McClaymont, who is, who is a, 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 a white guy, but born and bred in Zimbabwe, but he understands um, having grown uh, ex exclusively within a white community, I want his expertise in a fine, a refined understanding of global North epistemologies. Um, and I am strong in, in the African, uh, the global South epistemologies and the metaphysical worldviews. And then we are combining our expertise in bringing this book uh, in writing this book as a way to encourage uh, intercultural dialogue and the importance of other other of 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 taking seriously other knowledge traditions in the study of classics as a global um, in a global context rather than something that is just a preserve for a a, a white community. Mm. I hope I've answered that question, um, Miranda. 
That's a fabulous project. Thank you so much for telling us about it. That sounds very cool um, and very much relates to the book we've been talking about, I think, in a lot of important ways. So for any listeners who want to go read the book we've been discussing, again, it's titled Land Expropriation in Ancient Rome and Contemporary Zimbabwe, Veterans, Masculinity and War, published by Bloomsbury. Bernard, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Miranda. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.